Hi, everybody. I'm Wendy Murdoch, and this is Webinars with Wendy. I've been doing a series of webinars now for over a year, and it's so amazing to have the incredible guests that I've been able to bring to you, and also the feedback that I get from you about the webinars. Um, Ellen Rosen was our winner of the mug for our 200th webinar. Congratulations, Ellen. Um, and apparently, she tells everybody at her barn about webinars with Wendy, and some of them look at her sideways. So we're really glad to support your desire to learn and become more educated through these webinars. Webinars. Um, today, my guest is Ann Ramsey, and she is going to talk to us about asymmetry in horses. So, um, Ann, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Wendy, thank you so much for having me on your program. It's always an honor and a privilege to be here with you, having fun and learning more about horses. Today, I want to talk a little bit about um, asymmetry and movement uh, with horses and uh, the uh, 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 title of the presentation is Movement Asymmetry in Horses, Asymmetric or Lame. So we're going to talk a little bit about where that gray area is um, and a, a little bit about my background. I was going to say before we roll into your presentation, just yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a, a little bit about my background. Um, I have a bachelor of science in animal science and a concentration in equine from Cal Poly, uh, San Luis Obispo. It's a wonderful state school out here in uh, California. And then I uh, have worked as a farrier uh, for um, about 15 years. And I also um, work as an equine rehabilitation uh, therapist. So that means I work in parallel with veterinarians and I help horses return to work after injury. Um, but I also work with riders and, and uh, uh, just horses that may be having performance problems, things like that. So, but I'm just a general horse geek. I can't get enough. And I'm just constantly trying to learn more. Um, <clears throat> so, Along the way, but I try to share what I'm learning. And becoming a farrier. Sorry, how did you get interested in becoming a farrier? Oh, well, you know what? It's it's really, it was kind of an accident. I just was, um, I was out of school um, kind of in 2006. I graduated from Cal Poly and I was working as a veterinary technician, small animal veterinary technician. I was also uh, uh, working as a, uh, horse trainer kind of and like a riding coach um not the kind of riding coach that Wendy is <laughs> Wendy is like a par excellence riding coach but I was a, you know an okay riding coach um and uh but I was really wanting to get back into the in-depth anatomy and science uh work that I've been doing at Cal Poly and, um, and so, um, and I wanted the opportunity to actually take a horse that was suffering uh, with injury or uh, that was lame in some way and, and, and be part of the team that made it better. And that was what drew me into first trimming um, and then eventually using composite shoes um, and, and shoeing horses. Um, and I did mentorships with um, Kirk Atkins. Kirk Atkins was a farrier at uh, UC Davis uh, for 20 years. He's a wonderful guy. 
Um, I live in Davis now currently, but he still lives down the road from me in the hills of Vacaville. Um, and then when I was at Cal Poly, uh, one of my senior lecture guests was uh, Monique Craig and John Craig. And, um, and so I was just totally bowled over by Monique uh, Craig and her trimming uh, theory, the bone reference trim. Um, and their software, sort of everything they bring to the table just kind of blew me away. Um, and I'm, I've done a lot of study at Epona Mind um, and I'm, I, uh, I still learn from them all the time and ultimately ended up using their <clears throat> techniques and, and, um, and tools to become a therapeutic farrier. So uh, a lot of science involved in horseshoeing. You, you really can't um, just sort of guess when it comes to horse feet you have to really be precise so that's what drew me to it a lot of science well, I, I i should contact monique anyway get her back her, her webinar was was a, a really it was really in depth it was amazing oh yeah monique always says you know trimming and chewing horses physics minus math you know she's not wrong so <laughs> monique is amazing um, she's amazing but yeah, um, yeah. Awesome. All anyway. right, so let's dive into your Great. topic. It looks like everybody's pretty much joined us now. Okay, let me see if I can uh, get this together for us. Let's see, screen one, screen two. That's it. Okay, all right. Yep. So just remember, okay. if you have a question during the webinar, just put it in the chat or the Q&A, and then I will ask Anne at where I feel like it's appropriate, where there's a little pause. Thanks. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to talk a little bit about lameness assessments in this lecture. Um, and I just want to make a, a little bit of a statement about guidelines. I was taught these rules for understanding lameness, lameness assessments as a layman at Cal Poly as part of my undergraduate degree. And so that's why I feel comfortable teaching and talking to other lay people about how to use these. Um, but I just want to say as a disclaimer that spotting a lameness does not equate to diagnosing a lameness. Diagnosing is deciding where uh, pain is coming from and, and, and why. And that's something only a veterinarian only a veterinarian has the training skills and diagnostic equipment to be able to do, as well as the licensing. So this lecture is just intended to increase the uh, ethical treatment of horses by heightening the awareness of the average horse owner. And it's intended to get horses to the necessary veterinary care that they need. Yeah, because, you know, the, the first line is the person with the horse, typically they're the one that feels something. And, you know, since right. we're living with them, it, it's part right. of our responsibility. Right. I just want owners to be able to tell, hey, my horse is limping. If you yeah. can't tell your horse is limping, how do you know to call it that? Right. Exactly. So, um, so the, when we talk about horses that have an, an asymmetrical gait, um, you know, a lameness would be the biggest and most sort of dangerous expression of an asymmetrical gait, right? A limp. Um, and the basic lameness assessment 
that um, I was taught in school, but also that veterinarians are taught in school is this rule, it's called head down sound. Um, and what it means is that as the horse is going along, if you see this big sort of, people call it head bobbing lame, if you've ever heard that expression. But when the horse is usually moving in a trot, um, they will place their head down on the sound foot in a head bobbing gait. Okay, and, and usually when you're assessing this, you're viewing the horse either in the walk or in the trot as they move straight towards you or away from you. And to know which forelimb is lame, the students are taught the, that the, uh, the head down is, 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 is uh, on the sound forelimb. Um, so kind of the guidelines are to work on a flat and hard surface and you have a handler hold the horse for you. So, and this is something, sorry, go ahead. Wendy. I was going to say, if we look at the sort of the physics of head down and sound, um, basically the way I understand it is you're going to raise the 40 pound head at the three foot lever arm, which weighs hundred pounds up and back toward the center of mass to offload the, what's uncomfortable. Absolutely. And we, we sort of, we, we want to analyze, when we analyze lameness in general or asymmetry of gait, we do it in the trot. And this goes for um, whether we're doing it subjectively, just using our eyes, or whether um, veterinarians are doing it with high-tech diagnostic equipment like the lameness locator, which is a series of accelerometers. And the reason that we use the trot is because in the trot, um, the head, withers, and pelvis have symmetrical vertical movement in a sound horse. So in the stance phase, the weathers, the withers, head, and pelvis all move downward. And in the push-off phase, they all move upward. And so this makes the trot really the ideal gait uh, for monitoring lameness. And it's, it's um, the gait where vertical movement asymmetry is just very, very sensitive. So, um, so that's one of the reasons if you see vets trotting horses up and down the pavement, that's why they're, they're doing that. The trot is really the, the mother of of the gates for lameness and for asymmetrical movement. Oh, this is a great illustration. Yeah, isn't it? Yes. I love it. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> so one of the reasons that the horse um, is, that the, the, the head is so um, important for both hind limb lameness, uh, uh, offloading and forelimb lameness offloading is that the head and the neck are connected to the spine. And um, so the, the, the horse is really in a hind limb lameness, they are pulling, they're, they're sort of dumping their head and neck forward to offload the hind limb. It, when they put their head and neck down in, they're really pulling that pelvis and that spine with them to sort of offload that hind limb that, that is in pain. And in the forelimb, 
when they're lifting that head and neck and the head and neck all together could weigh as much as 300 pounds in a, in a horse that was big enough, they are taking weight off of that forelimb. Horses are also usually decelerating when they're lame, right? They slow down. Um, and so they're, they're really, they're doing a couple of things to take weight um, off of that, off of that limb that is painful. And there's actually been some studies done on, at least in the forelimb, uh, what the head nod is doing. And so force can be reduced with this head nod in a mild lameness by about 4%. Um, that study was done by Weshup et al. So but I love this picture. This picture is great, but now I'm a, a little bit confused because we've said head down is sound, but what you're saying now is that if it's a hind end lameness, they're gonna lower their head to offload their hindquarters. So right. we have yes. to kind of think about that statement in relation to whether we're looking at the front end or the back end. Yeah. And hind limb lamenesses are really tough. And in fact, I think I'm going to get to that in the next slide. So four limb lamenesses are pretty easy to, um, are pretty easy, pretty easy to spot, but hind, hind limb lamenesses are really tough. And I'm going to, going to get there. You're, you're always one step ahead of me. Wendy. Okay. <laughs> you're such a quick thinker. So I love coming on with you, Wendy. You're always like, you're right, you're right on the tip of where I'm going with things. Um, so one of the reasons that um, because, because horses do these complicated things to, to offload, uh, especially a hind limb lameness, that, so, so in a, in a, um, forelimb lameness, it's pretty obvious. The head and neck come up to lift weight off of that front limb. And it's a very sort of simple relationship. You can see it really easily. When we're talking hind limb lamenesses, it stuff gets really subtle and it gets really hard to see. Um, and so we've turned to um, uh, machinery, right? So the, this really cool thing uh, that was created by this scientist named Tilo Fow, um, it's called the lameness locator. And um, it's really great because the human eye is subjective, right? And our eyes can kind of lie to us. We know this. <laughs> the human eye is, you know, we can make errors. Um, but the computers are, are really objective. They don't make those mistakes. Um, and this um, lameness locator is so uh, good at this with accelerometers placed in different areas. So the accelerometers are placed on the, the back of the head, the withers and the tuber sacrale, which if you remember, I was talking about in the trot are those areas that are really sensitive to the vertical displacement in the trot. So, um, in a, in a forelimb lameness, the head and the withers will move together. Uh, they'll, be, they'll remain united in a forelimb lameness. But in a hind limb lameness, the head and the withers kind of become disunited. And so that you have to then look at the tuber sacrale for a hind limb lameness. And that's, that's tough. 
it's kind of hard on our brain. Our brain starts going, wait, wait uh, and we start getting confused. So the, the accelerometer on the tuber sacrale and on the withers and on the head saves our eye. It's like, we got this. We can, we can, we can measure all of this data for you. Um, well, can you use your pointer and just point out the tuber sacrale in this picture just so yeah, we Yeah, the tuber sacrale is right here. And it's what a lot of us call the croup. I should be using, I should use that term. I should have used I, Both, I think we should educate people, so both. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, in this picture, it actually looks like there are other markers here on the, the wing of the ilium here, what we would call the point of the hip, okay? And those can be interesting too, because those can teach you about the rotation of the hip. But this, this instrumentation is so sensitive that it can tell you about whether something is a push-off lameness in the hind end or whether it's an impact lameness in the hind end, meaning that is the pain coming when the horse steps down and, and impacts uh, upon landing or is the pain coming when the horse is pushing off in the gait cycle for a hind limb lameness. It can't do that in the forelimb, but it can do it for a hind limb lameness. So it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, and it's one of the reasons that I actually recommend um, if you're dealing with a hind limb lameness, one, go to a veterinarian, because some solo practice veterinarians own, own a uh, lameness locators, but go to a clinic where they have one of these, one of these, if you can afford it, if you can, um, because you'll save a lot of money in terms of chasing down and pinpointing problems. Um, but sorry, I digress. I want to go through okay. this slide because I want to talk about why it's important. Um, so hind limb lameness is much more challenging for vets to diagnose by the naked eye. There was a study done where they got 86 veterinarians and, and tested them on diagnosing a hind limb lameness visually or a, or a, a forelimb lameness visually. And the vets got 75% to 87% correct in identifying a forelimb lameness. But the scores plummeted when they had to diagnose a hind limb lameness. It was only about 22 to 44% correct. And that's not because veterinarians are not good at, at, at diagnosing hind and lame, limb lameness. It's because of all the factors I just described. Um, and that's that these hind limb lamenesses are very challenging to see and they're very challenging to tease out from each other. Um, so it's really, They've done multiple studies replicating this study, uh, testing veterinarians, and the scores were never much better. Um, so it's really not that that vets are any different from many other types of people. It's that horses, when they're dealing with a hind limb lameness, actually um, what they're doing is separating their withers on their head and they actually are much better at distributing the weight amongst their three other legs. And so it becomes much more subtle um, and much harder to see. Well, horses are masters at compensation. I right. mean, that's one of the reasons diagnostics, lame, lameness identification in general is so difficult. 
Right. And then there also was this other study, which was really fascinating. There was a multi-clinic comparative study where a bunch of different vet clinics got together and they're like, let's share data with the lameness locator. And um, in, in uh, hind limb lamenesses, there's often a same side uh, forelimb lameness that is a compensatory lameness that will uh, look larger. So, um, uh, it, it's just something that happens. Like, let's say you had a right hind lameness, uh, there'll be a con- compensatory right forelimb lameness that can occur. And often what will happen about 30% of the time, which is pretty statistically large, um, that right forelimb lameness even will fool the computer. So it'll look larger than the real. So that even will leave clinicians, you know, and the computer fooled into chasing down a huge long litany of diagnostics in a compensatory forelimb. So that's how tricky hind limb, pelvic limb lameness diagnostics can get. So this is what I'm saying. Like when I, um, you know, when I start trying to help owners understand about how to look for limping in horses, right? Because I don't teach diagnostics. I don't teach anything like that. But I try to teach owners how to see if your horse is limping. Um, I try to teach them about forelimb limping and what it looks like. But when it comes to hind limb limping, I'm like, you know, I try to teach you some things to look for. But if you suspect something's funky, you know, just call it that right away. Um, because even for very sophisticated vets with very sophisticated equipment, this is a bugger, right? This is tough. Um, so, so, and I think you'll get into this, but someone's asking how you would distinguish something higher up, like the shoulders or withers versus a limb. Oh yeah. Again, that would be, um, well, again, I'm, I'm not a clinician, right? So I'm not a, a DVM, um, but I think it would probably, I, I'm not sure that the lameness locator does things like that. What it does is it can tell you a right forelimb, a left forelimb, right hind, left hind. It can, it can tell you things like a, there's a back lameness uh, because believe it or not, like the back actually will have... Um, uh, certain, uh, signals for lameness, things like that. Um, but it doesn't tell you specific joints. That's still something that the, the doctor has to investigate and use their clinical experience and clinical reasoning to chase down. And Um, the photo that you have is really interesting because I've seen the lameness locator in use, but they, they didn't have all these data points. They had, I think it was right front pole and, uh, uh, croup. Yeah. It was just like three. So this is interesting. It looks like the technology has advanced to be able to pick up more things like backs. This might actually be, this might be a, this might be a photo of accelerometers or mocap. And I accidentally swapped it I had a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive me. 
I'm so sorry. I, you know, do you know that when women have a child, 40% of their prefrontal cortex shrinks? Really? Yes. It's a real thing. It really happens. I've started absolutely not being able to spell things, remember things. Like sometimes I have these long pauses when I'm trying to recall something and it's just not coming. So this photo might actually be a mocap photo. And I think it's a different type of lameness locator one. But yes, the lameness locator is a right front, a skull cap, um, a tuber sacrali and a, um, see it's happening again, but you get the point. Yep. Um, In any event. uh, So in other words, I think to recap this, that you know, if you're, if you start to suspect a lameness, there are tools such as the lameness locator, which are much better at assessing hindem lameness than visual. Absolutely. Most vets can pick up a visual front end lameness, but the hind end, because of the way the horse compensates is much more difficult to, to right. out. Right. And well, I think a lot of people imagine that it would be exorbitantly expensive to go to a clinic and use something like the lameness locator. Experience has shown me, and I've worked with clients dozens, I've seen this play out dozens of times. It is so much cheaper to go and get the correct diagnosis the first time Mm -hmm. than to chase red herrings for months um so i would to save money or if you're working with insurance or something like that any in any event okay um, moving on moving on so that's a little bit about lameness and lameness is is a gait asymmetry but we also know that horses have just movement asymmetry uh right so working horses um these are a couple of studies that were done um, 220 horses in training perceived as not lame by their riders who were not treated for lameness uh, in any recent past um, were looked at with the lameness locator and 73% of those horses presented with, asym- with asymmetries of similar magnitude to a lameness. So at first glance, that kind of sounds like oh my gosh, you know, we're riding a lot of lame horses. Let's just put a pin in that for a minute. Let's put our, let's put our scientific caps on and say like, wait, let's not rush to judgment here. Um, Tilo Fow, again, one of the people that invented the lameness locator, um, did a similar study where he looked at polo ponies and found that about 60 to 67% of those horses had again, what we would call clinically significant motion asymmetries. Um, The language in this sentence is um, asymmetries of similar magnitude to a lameness, of similar magnitude. So we have to look at the language really carefully there. Of asymmetries of a similar magnitude to a lameness. What is the difference between an asymmetry and a lameness. What's the magic ingredient? Um, the ingredient, the magic ingredient is pain, right? Like my gate and, you know, my husband's gate and, you know, 
most people I know, most horses that I know and work with, their gates are pretty asymmetrical. Um, are they in pain? So there's been some analgesic testing studies done. Um, so this is an example of one, 66 horses in training. Um, they all had a baseline objective motion analysis done. Um, you know, the emotion analysis was done over, <clears throat> or they're all working over different ground surfaces, um, uh, speed and circle size um, on the straight line and, and on the circle. And then they were treated with meloxicam and meloxicam is uh, an NSAID. Okay, and this was a, a, like a double blind and it was a double crossover. So first there was a one group that got meloxicam and another group that got a placebo, which was vanilla yogurt. So they were, had vanilla yogurt squirted into their mouth instead of meloxicam, one group had meloxicam. Um, and then they were, then the two groups were swapped. And what the study found was that these NSAIDs had no effect on their motion asymmetry on these 66 horses. So what can we take from this? So either the horses weren't in pain or these NSAIDs didn't target the kind of pain these horses had. Has anybody replicated this study? I don't know. This was done by like Mary, I, I think this was done by Mary Rodine and this is at the University of Sweden. And I'm sure there are other studies like this. Here's an example of, of a, non-clinical, it's not a peer-reviewed study, but veterinarians recommend a pain study like this all the time. And it goes like this. Um, I mean, I watch this as a therapist all the time. Veterinarians will say uh, to, my, to my clients, well, we don't know like if, if, if they get a horse or I work with rescues. And so sometimes a horse will have kind of a gait Asymmetry is kind of funky. They'll get a new horse and then they'll say, why don't you try putting the horse on Prevacox for 10 days and see if the horse responds. And if the horse's gait asymmetry really doesn't change and the horse doesn't really seem to have any response, they kind of draw some conclusions about that. So that's kind of a common exploration. I don't know, but I don't think we really know. And this is something else that really fascinates me. I'm actually writing an article about this, about pain science and in, in uh, um, it, it's a large field of study in humans. Right. Um, and I actually have read a lot about it um, for personal reasons, but um, in horses, I don't, I, I'm not sure that we've, um, Ex explored it as much as we should or could. Um, I do know that horses, um, you know, Dr. Nicole Rombach has talked a lot about the fact that horses actually can get into what are called dysfunctional movement patterns. They have something called a central, uh, central pattern generator. And if they get into an injury or just a dysfunctional movement pattern, or they have a, a muscle weakness, or let's just say it's 
handedness. It kind of, I kind of use my body asymmetrically. We all do. Um, uh, they would have to, in order to straighten out or make their body more symmetrical, they would have to go through some PT or some real rehabilitation in order to use their body more symmetrically. It may not be painful. It may be dysfunctional. Yeah. This is what I have found so fascinating about Surefoot for all these years, because, yeah, you know, if, if the horse is truly lame, putting them on a Surefoot pad should not change their gait because it's a pain gait. And yet, that is one of the number one things we see change is gait movement, right? We see really? Oh, absolutely. Um, change in stride length instantly. I've seen it. I've seen horses literally look dead lame. The first horse, he was lame and he went sound. So in 15 seconds. So, so that's where I find this study so fascinating. And, you know, I do believe horses wind up with habitual movement like people Maybe there was a pain that started it and the pain doesn't exist anymore, but the pattern maintains unless we kind of wake the system back up and reset it. Yeah, that's what Dr. Nicole Rombach's uh, sort of, I, I believe she's done some research on it. That's what she's saying is that, and, and that's what my rehabilitation therapy training has kind of taught us is that horses will have a prolonged injury um, and, uh, kind of a, a, dysfunctional movement pattern develops. And so long after the tissue is healed, that, um, central nervous system pattern will not automatically reverse unless a therapist helps the horse reverse it. And there's also some interesting data, um, that shows that, you know, let's say that you have a horse um, that has navicular and you, or, uh, you know, chronic pain in their feet and you block their foot, um, they may not instantly reverse their limping pattern. It might improve a little bit, but not, not a lot, especially if it's been a prolonged thing. Mm -hmm. If it's an acute lameness, it will but if it's a prolonged lameness, it won't. And that has a lot to do that makes, I'm, I'm writing an article about this. It's going to come out later in the month, but that makes a lot of sense with what we know about human neuroscience, because pain doesn't actually occur at the site of tissues, right? Doesn't occur there. It, it occurs in your brain and it occurs eventually it gets logged into like memory. So you develop what's called a neuro tag, which is like a neuro, a neurological signature for the brain. And if it's prolonged, all of your uh, nociceptors in the area get permanently upregulated. So it takes very, very little to excite that neuro tag. So um, are you familiar with David Butler's work in Australia? He, he has a book called Explain Pain and they have no grip. I've, I've heard all about David Butler. I haven't read it. I've, I've, I've followed like Lorimer Mosley a lot. He's a really great guy. Okay. But my, the interesting thing for me about these horses, these asymmetrical horses that don't respond to this pain thing, I, they could have, they could have like neuropathic pain they could have, which NSAIDs wouldn't really target. They could have just an asymmetrical gait, which 
they could, which could be it, um, or a central nervous system pattern that, it, that isn't correcting. We don't really know. Like this is this one study, it doesn't really go far enough. Right. Um, but um, what we do know at the end of the day is like, there are a lot of horses like everywhere, anywhere and everywhere that are pretty asymmetrical in work. And some basic low level experiments with pain medication doesn't seem to change their inherent asymmetry. So though we digressed. That's okay. That was a good digression. Because, because we love pain science. Maybe we should do a whole one on pain science. That, that, would, that would be fascinating. Be, actually, would be a really fun, really fun one to geek out on. I would, I would come back for that. That would be really fun. <laughs> so, so um, if I was invited, um, so one of these ones, one of the explanations is handedness, right? In quadrupeds. And handedness accounts for a lot of asymmetry, right? I mean, handedness really creates all kinds of asymmetry in the body. And um, this is something I'm pretty interested in. Um, the late Dr. Carrie Ridgway, I think, gives the best working description of handedness in horses. I don't know, Wendy, maybe you've heard of another one that you like better, but um, horses basically want to catch the trunk weight of their body with their more uh, sensitized and kind of coordinated foot. Um, people often confuse the dominant limb with the lead limb in canter, um, but it's not. The, the dominant supportive limb is really maybe a better term. So the dominant supportive limb is the limb they wanna hold under their body. So a horse that likes to a horse that's easier to ride and canter to the left has a right forelimb dominant supportive limb. And most horses are right forelimb dominant supportive. That's why it's easier to ride most horses in the canter to the left. Um, and it creates really interesting changes for their feet. Like, let's say that there were no, there are many things that influence foot shape. So please fellow farriers, you know, um, know that I understand this is not the only thing that creates high heel, low heel feet, but let's say we throw out everything else, um, including injury. And let's just say we're talking only about this variable, um, you know, it would create a high heel, low heel foot. And that would be caused by the range of motion of these two different legs. And so the high heeled foot or higher heeled foot would be the one that is on the dominant supportive limb, which is held underneath the body. So for right forelimb dominant supportive horse, that would be the higher heel would be the right foot. The lower heel would be the left foot. I have a picture here of, um, this is a horse. Uh, these are his uh, feet. Um, and, and really, you know, this is fairly typical, um, for a high heel, low heel pair of feet. And, uh, can, again, can I sorry. ask you a question about that? Yeah. So you're saying that the, the dominant foot, the one, the horse is going to keep under his body and feel more secure on is the high yeah. heeled foot. Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess in my, my sort of logical idea, it would be the low heeled foot because they're loading it more. 
Yeah, that's a really common kind of thing. What And what's interesting is Hillary Clayton published a really cool paper on this and it kind of explains it. So, so the loading and the the way that the left front gets overloaded is two, twofold. So the right front gets held underneath the body. And the reason that the heel gets high is because it's actually not extending as far. The range of motion is less. So the heel actually gets held up a little bit higher, right? Because it isn't extending. Okay. So that range of motion of that heel is short, shorter. The whole range of motion for that leg is slightly shorter. And then the way that the, those front legs are used is different over time. Um, Hillary Clayton had a really cool treadmill study where um, she used force plates on the treadmill and then she used um, mocap all along the spine of the horse. And what she found is that the horses um, used the dominant supportive limb almost like a almost like a passive strut. So what they would do is they would use their dominant supportive limb and they would kind of like vault over it and then they would sort of slam down on their uh, non heel. Yeah. So they loaded it a little more. Okay. And so even though, it's not, even though it's not their more highly coordinated foot. And then the other thing that happens is it, women at home can do this. If you go home and put on a kitten heel and then stand around in your house, which foot are you going to put? Are you going to stand on, up on your kitten heel? Or are you going to stand on your foot that's lower? Mm. You're going to have to stand on the foot that's lower when you're at rest, even though it's not your dominant supportive. When you're standing at rest, you're kind of going to be more comfortable standing a little bit more on your, on your lower one. So at least that's my theory. So it's so we're uh, just clarifying that the dominant foot is the higher heel. Yeah. Okay. And just one other question about that. So if I saw a horse standing in the field grazing and he's always standing asymmetrically, one, you know, one foot in front of the other, would mm -hmm. would it be reasonable to assume that the leg that's under his body is his dominant leg and that he's advanced his non-dominant leg? Yeah. So but he also but he also has to sort of if you if you see what he has to do to kind of get off the heel he also has to kind of push that high heel out back beside his body too but right. they do switch i mean one of the things that always bothered me about the idea that it was a postural thing is that they do have to stop and stand on their low foot and put their high heel foot out front it to me like, and this is maybe I'm biased because I'm such a movement person. These legs are happening because of the way they move, because of the way they trot. And the reason that the foot gets higher, it, it, it has nothing to do with the keratin. Like the keratin is, the keratin is the end result. It's a fingernail. Right. It has to do with the 17 tendons and ligaments in the leg. And those are responding to the range of motion. And I have it in another PowerPoint. I think I showed it maybe on my first 
thing here, but the actual coffin bones change shape over time. The actual coffin bone in the low foot elongates, the actual pastern uh, changes angle. And that's because the, the collateral ligaments relax and that's happening from movement. Um, and, and, and we have to remember the forces that are going through these limbs. Um, and, and so it's, it's the range, it's the range of motion that these legs are going through. And so for, for me, the, um, what was powerful about the Clayton study was that most of the horses were right forelimb dominant supportive, but then when she had a, I think she had one lefty in there, the, the movement pattern was identical in a mirror image. The mm -hmm. horses vaulted over their they vaulted over their left forelimb dominant supportive, kept it under their body and then slammed hard on their other one. So to me, that's what's shaping it. 500 pounds of pressure per foot at the walk, 1500 pounds of pressure, you know, and that's all coming from the brain. Right. So like, so to me, like all this art, I'm always like people like, no, it's happening in the womb. No, it's happening. It's like, it is happening in the womb. It is happening. It's happening in the brain. It's happening in the brain of the organism. So it's happening in utero. It's happening in the embryo. It's happening at stance in the field. But mostly where it's happening is when the animal is moving from the day it's born to the day it dies. You know what I'm saying? Yep. And, and what, you know, what drives me nuts is the farriers always getting trashed. And it's like, listen, we're, we're great people to help support these guys, but we don't cause this. There's no way we could cause this, you know? And just so people understand that in terms of the dominant supporting limb, you know, I, I, when I set up my balance trail for people to go over and I've had a webinar on balance trail, uh, you, if you pay attention to the foot that the person advances, it's not the one there's feeling secure on right you keep your secure foot underneath, underneath you, and you. you explore with the other foot and you don't transfer the weight until you're sure right that's it you got it wendy you got it yep you got it so this is what happens in the shoulders okay so here is there's a picture that says A, and this is our fantasy horse, right? <laughs> this is our unicorn that doesn't exist. Um, maybe it exists somewhere, um, but most of our most of our horses, and if you're saddle fitter, you know this. Um, uh, most horses look like the horse B, um, and this is actually uh, if you're looking straight at a horse, this is what a right. Uh, forelimb dominant supportive horse looks like. Uh, their scapula on the right has all the angles have closed and the scapula has kind of rotated caudally back. And on the left, the scapula, all the angles have opened and the scapula has rotated rostrally forward um, because the heel is lowering and all the joints are opening and they get this bulging kind of shoulder effect. But this, this effectively creates um, like two very functionally different legs on the front of a horse. 
Okay. So for me, like when I hear that the NSAID study didn't affect these guys that much, like to me, I'm kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, why would it like their whole thoracic sling is like, if they're, if laterality is having the kind of effects in morphology that I see in feet and in the thorax every day, like I can see why, you know, like butte or NSAIDs wouldn't change that asymmetry that much. Their thoracic sling is kind of crooked, most horses. So it would make them pretty asymmetrical, you know, enough where the mo where the um, lameness locator is going to pick it up. So to me, you know, yeah, they're just, I just see, I just see horses as pretty, as pretty asymmetrical, but I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a, um, uh, problem. I just think it's the way that, um, that nature is kind of, kind of is things are, things are not necessarily, um, meant to be symmetrical and there's actually kind of a reason for it, um, that I'll talk about in a little bit. So this is kind of the exciting part. So, okay. So if I'm, if maybe, me and kind of the other, the people I've studied, which is where I've got a lot of my thinking about this. I didn't come up with it or invent the, the wheel here. I, I read a lot and I studied a lot of other people who had some good thoughts about this. Um, are organisms inherently crooked or bent or asymmetrical, however you want to think about it? Um, well, let's like look at them from the beginning. So Mary Rodine is this associate professor at the Swedish University and she's done some preliminary data studies. And one of them started looking at foals really like almost the day they were born. And what she found was that 91% of foals are asymmetrical. So enough that if you look at them with the lameness locator, they, they ping the system as pretty asymmetrical. They're not their movement isn't straight. They're not, they don't come out as these perfect, um, perfectly straight beings. And then we're screwing them up with leading them or feeding them or whatever, which makes sense. A lot of people have argued, you know, that the foals sit in a certain position um, in utero, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, so Mary Rodine, um, said, okay, well, let's, let's watch them. Let's keep watching them. So she started this as time goes by study. And these were 106, you know, riding horses, they were young horses, and they were two and three year olds, and they were all untrained, right? So they'd just been led and fed. Um, and 73% of them, when they were looked at with the lameness locator, they all had asymmetries already. Okay, but they're not likely to be in pain. Like two and three-year-old horses are really not, um, they're not, you know, they're not lame. They're just kind of asymmetrical. And she had them examined every third month and the exams included a history, a clinical exam, an emotion analysis in a straight line and on a circle. Um, and then she gave the trainers a laterality questionnaire and so there were 516 exams in total, seven per horse. And lo and behold, there were almost no symmetrical horses 
only about 8% of them were deemed symmetrical for all variables. And they followed these horses over three years and what they found was really interesting. The researchers could not find that the horses became more asymmetrical with more training over three years. So what they found, they also found that the horses that started out very asymmetrical got better with training if they were well cared for, which I thought was really, really heartening. I mean, I, you know, we worry so much and we hear so much that we harm our horses with riding and we harm them with training them. Um, so I thought it was a, a nice to hear that the horses that were very, very crooked are very, very asymmetrical to the left and to the right, um, that the more they practiced working evenly left and right um, improved improved in their ability to work left to right. And it was, I guess they were, you know, they had these exams and each exam included this motion analysis. So it was uh, an objective data collection. I think that's a fascinating study. Yeah. And I think it's a really good point because, you know, that's, I can't tell you, oh, I don't want to mess my horse up. <laughs> you might not be yeah. is the point you might not be and the other thing is your horse is you know the other thing to realize is just that your horse is coming into the picture a biological organism and guess what you know biological organisms are not perfectly straight and nor should they be and so that's one of the things that I that I really want all of my horse owner friends and all of my clients to understand. I, I hear this so often, um, you know, that, that they want their horses to be straighter or that when they are told, Hey, your horse is asymmetrical. It's, oh, well then how can we fix that? Um, and I want people to understand you don't need to fix it. It's, it's probably not really a problem um, for most organisms, you know, let's just get big picture um, you know, my friend Tammy Elkian points out your heart sits on one side of your body. It, it may not, it, we don't need to move it to the center, <laughs> right? <laughs> we don't need to get it. You know, we're handed, we have a tighter side muscularly on one side of our body. The body is designed to be efficient. It's, it makes sense to save energy for the brain and the body to highly coordinate one side and have one side be less so. This is a, you know, evolution has done something intelligent here. You know, it's um, maybe intelligent is the wrong word, but it's done something that is uh, efficient and horses are doing something efficient as well. Um, and they're, they might be really beautiful and wonderful the way they are. You know, and I, I think you can also look at that in terms of riders that, you know, riders want to be straight, but I, I so clearly remember the time that I set up a rider and boy, was she straight and she could not function. Yeah. You know, so, so we have to look at the difference between asymmetry and function. You know, that's like a whole nother story where I had, as another story, I had a guy with a humpback that 
rivaled the humpback from Notre Dame and he was a lovely man. And I just helped him function better so he could canter on both leads, but we weren't going to change his asymmetry. Right. So I, I think that we right. have to parse that a little bit. We want the horses well balanced, but that's right. It's about balance. It's not about symmetry. You're not gonna, um, not gonna achieve it, you know, and, and it's the same, like with feet, the feet, um, I cannot make a horse's two front feet perfectly symmetrical, but I can make each, I can support each foot as an individual. Um, Mm -hmm. and I don't, you know, I don't, when we're riding horses, it's, it's more about having a strategy for each direction that you're riding. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's really not about riding the horse the same way in each direction. It wouldn't, wouldn't work. Wouldn't make sense. <laughs> you know that, you know, but you are, you are really the riding coach, right? You understand that it's about having a strategy for each horse for each direction so you change direction you change strategy to help them on that side yep so this was one other thing i wanted to leave people with and it has to do with asymmetry on the circle and i think this is probably something you know a lot about i don't know we haven't talked about this but this was an interesting study just about the lameness locator so they um circles induce asymmetry. I mean, think about it. Um, You're taking the horse and you're basically putting them on the circle. You're sort of tilting them inward. And um, what it can do is it can actually, on the lameness locator, it can induce an asymmetry big enough to mimic a lameness. So, um, or an asymmetry of magnitude similar to a lameness. So one of the things that I thought was really fascinating about uh, uh, what Mary Rodine said at the end of her lecture was she said, now pre-purchase exams for her are just a nightmare because what she, <laughs> said, what she says to her clients is, I don't know what to tell you. Your horse is asymmetrical. I don't know what to tell you. Is he in pain? Is, is there a problem? I don't know. Um, but um, it's something to really understand that circles um, can make your horse look um, asymmetrical and that um, this was interesting when lunging increased vertical uh, uh, oh I have to move this or I can't see vertical head and pelvic asymmetry during lunging was observed and common common pelvic asymmetric patterns seen were less upward movement during push-off of the outside hind limb and less downward movement of the pelvis during impact of the hind limb to the inside. And there was a repeatable uh, asymmetry and it was identical when the direction changed. And it just kind of reminds us that posting on the correct diagonal is really important because it balances the movement asymmetry that is created by the circle. And if if I recall correctly, um, Dr. Clayton did a study where they looked at the circle size and when 
the, the you're going to see a greater appearance of what seems to be lame when the horse is on a too small circle. In other words, they can't accommodate a very small circle. And so when I see horses lunged or their groundwork done on a very small circle, I always get concerned. Yes. They have to compensate for that size. Um, so yeah. a larger circle is always better. Better. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, somebody's asking, what are signs we can look for that indicate when a symmetry is not functional, but the horse isn't lame? I'm not sure I understand that. What signs can we look for that indicate when a symmetry is not functional, but the horse isn't lame? Ooh. Oh, I think, I think I'm trying to interpret. I think what you're asking is it's a dysfunctional movement pattern, but the horse isn't in pain. Is that what you're asking? Trish, if you can just type in whether that's the question, that would be helpful. Uh, she hasn't responded yet, but maybe. It's okay. I think that, I think that's what I'm hearing. Okay. Um, how can you tell? Oh gosh. It's kind of like, um, I mean, I can say that for me as a therapist, I feel like you kind of know it when you see it. So, so she's responded, yes, but when we should be trying to address it or not. So if we see an asymmetry, I think what her question is, when we see an asymmetry, when is it something we need to be concerned about versus that is the asymmetry in this horse? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very case by case, it's very individual. I would say um, it's a dis, if it's a dysfunctional movement pattern, um, typically you're, what you're going to see is a very noticeable overloading of one limb that is causing, that you can tell is going to cause extreme stress to that limb over time. Um, I think that's probably the best answer that I can give. Um, Wendy, how would you answer that? Well, I, I think if I understand the question, um, the for me the difference between an asymmetry, like I see that the horse is moving asymmetrically, versus I need to call my vet and figure out what's going on, are two things: loss of suspension and shortness of stride. So if I see my horse lose suspension or I feel that my horse is losing suspension because I go back to Dr. Clayton um, mm. where she talked about the first sign of lameness was the horse keeps the foot on the ground longer with a lower loading force. In other words, mm. you know, when you're walking and you're, and you're, you don't want to land hard on that foot. So you're going to place that foot down and kind of, kind of, like you say, go over it, but not increase the ground reaction force if you can help it. Oh, I like that. Oh, so, that's good. Yep. So you lose suspension that, you know, when you, when you talk to your dressage riders, that's the first thing they'll say is my horse doesn't feel right. Just right? flat. Right. And, and that flatness is the first sign that something's going on. And then the other, of course, is a change in stride length. Um, yeah. So, Shortening so, it up. Right. Yeah. Or unwillingness to move, you know, and I think what we really have to recognize is unwillingness to move is, is, 
a huge one in terms of a flag. Like I need to figure something out. Right. (laughs) It could be a myriad of things, but the not wanting to move is, is so I've been recently dealing with some stuff with my, my horse, Al, and we're trying to figure this out. And now we've come to the conclusion he might be abscessing in two feet. (laughs) I'm not sure yet. We're still, you know, so, but you know, his, in his unwillingness to move his, like when we started to figure out the hind end last night, when he went over the little step out of the barn aisle, he was like, okay, my left front hurts. And we think my left hind hurts. So, you know, it's those it's, but I didn't pick up the hind end foot until he tried to step out of the barn, you know? So it is challenging. It's very challenging. It is because especially because our horses can't um, speak, you know, and that, that's the time you just wish you could pull out a microphone and say, yeah, talk to me, buddy. I'm all, I'm all ears, you know? Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, that's a tough one. But that I've always remembered Dr. Clayton talking about flat being the first sign. And I've, I've used that as a way to, um, you know, does my horse feel like he's lost suspension? Now, if you have a gated horse, that's a whole nother ballgame because there is no suspension. So <laughs> I don't oh, know. Gated why horses. <laughs> oh my gosh. Gated horses. Oh, goodness. It's a whole, it's a whole nother conversation that's completely different because they, they only walk. All gates are walk. That's right. All gates are walk. Yep. And then they yep. kind of do a faster walk or a, so I, I don't know what I'm looking at, honestly. <laughs> no, they are become much more challenging. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. Okay. Is that well, your last? Is that? That is, that is all I've got for today, but yeah. So someone's, and they're making a right point. You should let a vet decide if it's pain or not. If not, then you can either accept it or work on therapy. A friend's horse was unwilling to move. Cranky turned out to be a hairball. Experienced equine vet can help. And I couldn't agree more that you know, I think our job in this conversation is to, to, is this time, you know, like, is there something going on and should I call the vet? Um, yeah, it's absolutely, uh, you know, it's, it's not a simple thing. It is not. (laughs) No, absolutely. Absolutely not. And, um, yeah, you should should always, if you're worried, if you're concerned, of course you should call a veterinarian. Well, and this is where, uh, I've, someone's asked me to have a webinar on heart math. I don't know if you're familiar with heart math. It's trusting no. our gut is a lot trusting our gut and our hot heart. And so often, you know, well, I was going to, I was going to say, you know, when the question first popped up, my first answer was, um, you know, it, when you see it, yeah. Yeah, like it, it's a, it's an old quote. I think there was a court case about someone, they were trying to have nude photographs censored you know and someone's saying what's the difference how do we know if, if it's art or if it's pornography and the, the attorney said you know it when you see it <laughs> you know and like that that's my first answer is just when when um when a horse is is really in pain and not doing well there's a gut feeling and it's you kind of know it when you see it um at least for me that would be my well, and the other way to think about it is you are better off. Um, You're better off calling when it's calling a false alarm than not. And finding out Absolutely. everything is okay. Right. Um, and not. Than right. not. 
And, and unfortunately, like one of the reasons that I, that I think it's important to teach things like head down sound, like I think every horse owner should be taught how to tell if a horse has a limp. You don't need to know why or which, you know, or even which leg, but if you don't know what a head bob, I mean, I have horse owners that will have me come out and they want, they want, you know, want something done on their feet and they'll ride the horse up and the horse is limping and they don't know. You know, I think that like, that's a basic tenet of just horse ownership, right? Just like if you own a dog, you should know what they eat or, you know what I mean? Horses, if you're going to own a ridden animal, you need to know if they have a flat tire, you know? (laughs) Um, So I think all horse owners should be able to tell um, if a horse, you know, is lame somewhere. And it and, and call somebody, you know, I think that's really important. Well, and and one of the things that I liked so much about your previous webinar was talking about getting baseline radiographs of feet. Yeah, annually. And and yeah, so or, 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 or you know, every two years yeah. at least. This but it's also never a bad thing to just have your vet come out and observe your horse in movement. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Especially when they get into their teens because things change really rapidly in their teens. Um, you know, stuff starts to happen really quickly. And yep. people will say to me when their horse is, you know, 12 to 15, they'll say, what's happening? It's like, they're falling apart. And it's like, well, they're just, this is the time when they're middle-aged and they're, you know, yep. it, se- it seems like everything is happening rapidly, but So somebody's just posted that my horse, my boy had sore feet for a long time, subclinical laminitis, and now the slightest misstep an ornery day just freaks me out. I'm so scared of hurting him again. The vet said he doesn't look lame and his feet don't show sensitivity, but I struggle feeling confident that he is okay. We had x-rays on October's and things look okay and he's 10. Uh, You know, can I handle this one for a second? Sure. Uh, You know, we have to live in the present. And when we live in the past of worrying we actually put that in our present and future and so you know we we can create another problem so it's really important to be able to be in the moment and look at your horse with a clean like just wipe the lens off and look again because otherwise we'll set them up just by our worry Um, and I don't know if you have any other comments there on that oh just but I get it. <laughs> I yeah. get it. I get it. I mean, I am the same. I am the same way with my own horses. I sort of like other people's horses, client horses. I can be very calm and logical. My <laughs> own horses, I really go to pieces. I have to call people and say, like, you know, I. I it's. It's. No, I couldn't agree with you more. That it's so. It's so much easier to look at someone else's horse than yeah. look at our own horse. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, and if you just unshare your screen, we'll wrap this up. Okay. Um, you know, I think the 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 goal here is just to give you some ideas to be able to look at your horse and and know that in your in your gut that things are okay. And by studying your horse, no, this is one of the things like just watching your horse in the field and seeing how he's moving and watching other horses to get an idea of what movement looks like. Yeah. Um, and I I I was I think of these asymmetry 
what I try to, I'm trying to accomplish about teaching people about asymmetry is I want you to learn about your horse's asymmetry so that you know what's normal for him. Mm -hmm. This is my horse's high heel. This is what his scapula on the right side of his body looks like, you know, draw on him in chalk. This is what his low heel looks like. This is his baseline normal so that your horse doesn't become this Rubik's cube to you that you feel confused by, if that, if that makes sense. And anyway. And um, Lorna just said, indeed, horse owners should have, should know baseline vitals, soundness, et cetera. If they don't know what is normal, they won't recognize abnormal. I couldn't agree more. Um, and I am hoping, um, she also says, owners often worry too much or not enough. <laughs> Yes. If you have objective ways to evaluate, it is calming. I could not agree more. Um, and to that end, I am working on a webinar from the barn where we're going to learn how to take a digital pulse. So uh, um, we just have to learn to see. That's right. Uh, I couldn't agree more, but you know, because I swear, I still don't know how to do a digital pulse. And so I want to learn. And while I learn, I'm going to take everybody with me on that one. Um, that's why I'm so glad we have high-speed internet at the barn now. And uh, I'm going to get a date with Dr. Harmon and she's going to teach us. I've told her, but we just have to schedule a date because these are just the kinds of things we all know we need to know, but sometimes we don't learn like me. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. And if I could just say quickly, I've got a class that's coming up. It starts in June. It's called Recognizing and Preventing Lameness. And I teach uh, more, more of the things we sort of dove into today. But if you're interested, you can go to my website. It's uh, www.equine-rehab.com. Can you just type that in the chat? Uh, yes, I will type it in the chat. So we have the spelling right. Yes. All right. And if anybody has any last questions, uh, let me know. And of course, if you, you know, if there's a webinar that you would like me to do, I, I've had some suggestions. Uh, I do take all your suggestions. Sometimes it's easier to organize them than others. Um, but if you have suggestions on what you'd like to see in future webinars, just pop me an email at wendy at wendymurdoch.com and be sure to join my email list uh, at murdochmethod.com. Just sign up for the email because I put the email out every Sunday with the weeks of webinars coming up. And sometimes I add some that aren't listed up there. So um, thank you all for joining us today. And thank you. And once again, this is it's great to see you. And this has been really fun. And uh, thank you all for joining us. And we'll see you on Thursday is our next webinar. And I forgot. Oh, it's with Lucinda Baker. Don't leave your horse behind. Great. So thanks, Anne. Bye, Bye -bye. everybody. Have a great day.